Welcome to the Audition Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Knopper. I'm a percussionist in the Metropolitan Opera, and my goal is to help you figure out how to win an orchestra audition quicker and easier than I did. This is episode two, and in today's episode, I'm going to explain exactly how I prepared and won my job at the Met. I'll tell you about some of my biggest audition struggles, and then I'll go through my five-step audition preparation process that I used to prepare for the audition from the day I got the list to the day of the audition. And as always, I'll answer a listener-submitted question. The day I won my Met audition, I remember it very clearly. I was sitting in the orchestra dressing room, which I now know very well. That's my dressing room where I get in my tux before operas. I was sitting around with about eight people who were all in the same round with me who had just played. We were waiting and waiting and waiting for the jury to deliberate. Finally, our orchestra manager walked into the room. All of the percussionists sitting around this little coffee table suddenly became silent. Nobody could say a word. Our hearts were beating, and I forget what number I was, but the orchestra manager said, this person has won the job. After that, my mind almost went blank. I didn't exactly know what to do. The orchestra manager told me he was going to take me down to meet the jury, and that I would just have to wait a few minutes. And I remember going out in the hallway, and I called my dad. He was used to hearing my calls about which audition I had just failed or which I had just gotten a rejection from. He was part of my hype team to say, okay, well, it didn't go well this time, but you'll do better next time. My dad at the time was on vacation in Poland, I remember. And he said, why don't you just not call unless you win? And so I called him and I was sent a voicemail and I said something like, Hey dad, just giving you a call. You said not to call unless I win. So I'm calling. Um, I'll talk to you later. And that was the moment, the start of my new life. So many things were changing in my mind. Up until that time, I never had any confidence with my audition preparation process. I was constantly worried about the way I practiced. I was constantly second guessing myself and I never knew if what I was doing was right, if it was correct or authoritative. Was I practicing in the right way? Was I putting my time into the right things? During my audition journey, I was absolutely willing to do anything that it took. I figured that if any human being on earth has figured out how to win a job, then I can too. I have the same brain. I have the same human body. I can figure out how to do it. I had no idea what to do though. So I constantly worried and second guessed myself about the way I practiced. I had all of these audition struggles. I had these huge struggles, these huge debilitating obstacles and issues in my playing. One big one is that I would shake. When I would actually bring my sticks up to the instrument, my fingers would start to shake and my hands would just shake. And of course, when you're trying to manipulate the small muscle groups of your fingers and hands to play a soft snare drum roll and make it sound smooth, and if your hands shake, then it stops sounding like a soft snare drum roll, like bzzz, and it starts sounding like that's not going to win the audition. So that was a big struggle of mine. I had this imposter syndrome when it came to phrasing and musicality. I've talked about this in a video before, but basically I have a rock drum set background. So my musical ideas are more rooted in progressive rock from the 70s that I used to listen to or music from the 90s and 2000s that my bands in high school used to cover. I'd be much more comfortable making musical and phrasing decisions if I'm playing something by Yes or Genesis or King Crimson or System of a Down or Metallica or something like that. So I felt like, how are these classical experts, these Mozart scholars, going to ever accept my interpretation of the magic flute excerpt on Bells? I also have this big obstacle that I have in common with actually our listener submitted question today. This percussionist named Richard shares an obstacle that I had exactly. So I want you to hear him ask the question. 
Hey, Rob, my question for you is to do with nerves related to memory. Like yourself, I'm a percussionist, and my issue for doing auditions is more of forgetting notes on like a mallet excerpt or just kind of blanking out or hitting wrong notes more from memory than anything else. I don't really have a problem with nerves in the hands per se, but it's nerves, I guess, related to memory lapses. Just wondering if you've ever countered that yourself or no other instrumentalists who have. Thank you for your time, and I really appreciate you doing this. All the best. Yeah, that is a great question, Richard. I think a lot of musicians have this issue of feeling like they sometimes lose their place in the music. Maybe they forget where they are or they stop playing for a second. And the idea that you could be derailed at any time and have to stop is a horrifying idea. You'd feel embarrassed in front of people listening to you. And the scariest part is you worry that this is something that might never have happened in a practice session. And if it never happened in the practice session, then you'd never know when it's coming. It could happen at any time. And so what I used to do is I'd used to really tell myself, I have to try really hard. I have to try and focus. I have to think carefully and intensely about every note as it's coming up. I would sit in the warm-up room before an audition worrying about this. As I walked into the audition room with my instrument and my sticks, I would worry that this is going to happen. And then even when I picked up my sticks to play and started playing, every note I would think, I have to stay on track. I have to keep my eyes glued to the music. And that's hard because as a percussionist, you have your music on the stand and then you have your instrument that you have to look at below the music and you kind of have to keep alternating between looking at the music and looking at your instrument. And it's hard to know what to focus on. And sometimes when you're going back from the instrument to the music, you lose your place and your eyes go to the wrong place and it's hard to figure out how to get back on track. It's funny because as you're on your audition journey, you're constantly overwhelmed with the struggle of trying to figure out how to overcome each of these obstacles. Your obstacles might look different, but you know most people, they have this set of obstacles that they're trying to deal with. And as you're trying to deal with them, it's easy to feel like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And even if you try things and you maybe think of solutions that might work and you try them out, even if some of them start to work a little bit, it can kind of seem like, yeah, I'm coping with this, but I still have no idea what I'm doing. I have to tell you, I never felt very confident in my audition preparation process all the way up to that day that I won the audition. I always felt like, well, I'm really obsessed with this. I'm, of course, practicing a lot. I might have practiced more than anyone else that I know. I've tried a lot of things to potentially overcome these obstacles, but I actually still don't really know what I'm doing. I think I have these coping mechanisms that try to help me overcome these obstacles, but I'm not sure if they actually work or if they're authoritative. I'm certainly not a professional, so I have nothing to use as credibility to show that what I'm talking about is right. And then after I won the audition, after that day, it suddenly changed. It, it flipped. I thought, well, who knows if they're authoritative, but they actually did work. Like that specific thing that I did to overcome the problem of shaking or the problem of imposter syndrome or the problem of losing my place, even if it's not signed off by, you know, the brain science community, or even if it's not something I think I should have done, whatever I did, it is authoritative. It is what I did to win an audition. And it's very likely, I think it might happen to you too, that no matter what obstacles you're trying to deal with, yes, you should think a lot about them. You should experiment with a lot of possible solutions like we talked about in the last episode, but you'll never really be sure if they are the right thing to do. You'll never be sure if the way you prepare for auditions is the right thing to do until you win an audition and it's proven to you that, yes, that is the audition preparation process that worked for you. 
So in the last episode, I talked about how to hack auditions. And I went over my concept about you know how auditions are just a science experiment. You think about what problems you have, you brainstorm possible solutions, you test out these solutions, and then you see if they worked at the audition. You collect the data about what happened, what the result was, what your feedback was, and then you try again in the next audition. So my audition preparation process, the one that I'm going to explain today, It is a reflection of the obstacles and the struggles that I had as an auditioner. Every step of my audition preparation process is a reaction to some problem, either some problem that I experienced during the performance, some feedback that I got from teachers or an audition judge. And so all the way through my process, you can connect it directly to some problem I had and likely Whatever my solution was, was the fifth or the 10th or the 25th thing that I tried to fix it. And so I want to go through my audition preparation process, the actual one that I actually used to win my med audition, so that you can see what my process looks like. This isn't necessarily what your process needs to look like, but it is a fully thorough, detailed, step-by-step process that you can kind of use as a template. You can say, well, this is a process that worked. This is a very thorough process. Maybe I don't need to do all the steps as in-depth as Rob does. Maybe I should do some even more in-depth, or maybe I need to add my own tweaks or adjust things or pull out things. It really depends on what your struggles are, because like I said, your ultimate audition preparation process should be a reflection of the obstacles you face, who you are as a musician, the way your brain is wired, etc. So I'll go through my audition preparation process. And along the way, I'm going to explain exactly which step of audition prep connects to which audition struggle that I told you about at the beginning so that you can understand exactly how I use the audition preparation process to deal with those struggles. So I'm following a template right now. Actually, I'm following a PDF that I created. It's called the Audition Cheat Sheet. It's a five-step guide to constructing your preparation process and optimizing it for maximum results. This is a process that works for any instrument because the concepts in this process are not instrument-specific. There's nothing about snare drum rolls. There's nothing about reed making or buzzing on your brass instrument or tuning up your strings. This is all instrument non-specific strategies that will help optimize your audition preparation process so that you can have a better audition day. My audition preparation process happens in four phases. I have phase zero, phase one, phase two, phase three, and then audition day. Pretty simple, right? When I prepared for the Met audition, I was in the New World Symphony. So I'll kind of talk about exactly how I prepared, what my timeline was, and what steps I did along the way. So the first thing that I do is I spend about a week getting organized. This is phase zero. I do a bunch of things during my organization week, but the one thing I don't do is play. I don't play at all during this week. I just devote it to doing all the work I need to do to get ready to dive into the practice room and actually be ready to learn the music. So some of the things I do during my phase zero getting organized week are I make audition packets. So I go out to, you know, Kinko's or whatever, and I make really professional looking audition packets. I make them with clear plastic covers and I have these 
these color-coded tags on the side where I can pull each tag and go directly to the place in the music. I want my audition packet to look really professional because, first of all, I want to show my mock audition listeners later on that I am serious and I need high-quality, fully-focused comments from them. I also sometimes just emotionally need a little reminder that I'm taking this seriously. This is not just something I'm throwing together. This is not an unorganized project. This is actually something I've decided to do officially with my life. So I want to have nice audition packets. Uh, I would recommend actually having three of them, one for you, one for your mock audition listener, and then one as an extra in case you lose one of the other ones. I also want to study the recordings, study them so that you have a complete, deep understanding and authority with how they go. If you were to go into the practice room in the next phase and start learning this music without doing this deep research, it could feel kind of like learning music out of an etude book or out of an exercise book where you're just learning notes, but you need to be learning music. You need to have a deep underlying understanding of the shapes and the phrasing and the emotion. You're going to have all sorts of questions as you go into the learning notes process and beyond. Things like, how loud should this crescendo get to? How much should I rubato here? How high should these accents stick out of the texture? And if you really know deeply what the pieces sound like and what all the recordings do, then you'll be able to be more authoritative in making those decisions. This is exactly how I got over the imposter syndrome aspect. Because if I feel like I don't really know the music and I'm not totally confident in my decisions, then I'll feel like I'm not worthy of playing in the audition. I'll worry about what the committee thinks of me and I'll worry about every single decision and whether it sounds appropriate. But if I've done deep research, and I mean like listening to 10 recordings and listening to them repetitively, taking notes on them, listening to them for specific aspects, if I really know what the range of interpretations of a particular excerpt is, including tempo and dynamic decisions and interpretation decisions, then I might not choose to play it exactly how everyone on the committee would have chosen to play it, but I know that I'm playing it in an authoritative interpretation kind of way. I know that it falls squarely within the acceptable tempos, within the acceptable phrasing map and structure. I know that I'm not getting too loud. I'm not staying too flat because I have referenced and I have all these recordings in the back of my mind that I can use as kind of a guide. Other things that I do during phase zero are I make a calendar. I actually plan out what I'm going to do in every single practice session. I plan out my general practice session structure, meaning like, what am I going to do? Warm up and then do a run through and then do my assigned work. And then I plan out what assigned work I'm going to accomplish basically for every day between now and the audition. These are things like do my note learning process on the bar talk or self-record the Mendelssohn. I also know that this is obviously going to change. There's going to be all sorts of adjustments that I have to make later on, but just by simply forcing myself through the exercise of making a calendar, I give myself an idea of, do I actually have time to work on the Bach for three weeks or do I only really have time to work on it for four days? So I should change the style of work that I'm doing on it and I should get over to the other excerpts. If you have a calendar like this, you're going to have a better chance of being thorough and getting the right kind of work done between the beginning and the end of the project. If you can look back on your schedule and know that you did your best with the time you had, that will instill a deep sense of confidence in yourself on the day of the audition. And that confidence will help prevent nerves from ever coming up in the first place. When you can prevent nerves from coming up, then that effectively, at least in part, 
solves the problem of something like shaking or some of the other symptoms of nerves that you might get. Okay, phase one is learning the notes. This is the first actual phase of practicing. So phase zero was get organized and research. Phase one is learning the notes. So one of my goals with learning the notes is I want to ingrain all of the notes and the details of the music into my muscle memory. I know that on the day of the audition, I'm going to get worried. I'm going to lose my mind for all sorts of reasons. And when I lose focus or when something happens, I tend to default back to my lowest version of the excerpt. And what I'm doing during my phase one practice is I am installing my lowest version of the excerpt at as high a possible level as I possibly can. I'm ingraining the notes and details into my muscle memory. So I don't really do slow practice. I have a process that I use called ROAM, R-O-A-M, which stands for repetitive, one note at a time, at tempo, metronomic practice. So I use a metronome. I'm doing a lot of repetitions. I'm working on just a small amount of music at once, just one note at a time, really. And I'm doing it at tempo so that I'm learning the right version of the excerpt. I should dive into this in more depth in another podcast episode, but what this allows me to do is when I actually get nervous, I know that my hands are still going to move from note to note in the correct choreographed way. I know that the dynamic map is generally going to be installed into how my muscles memorize the notes. I know that at least a simple version of the phrasing is going to be installed into the music. This is what really helps me with Richard's problem. Richard's problem was getting lost and actually losing your place in the excerpt. Well, if you can do this phase one learning notes process correctly, you can actually allow yourself to have a brain fart and actually lose your place knowing and trusting that your hands are going to do the right thing. For me, I don't want to have to have a system where I am forced to focus intensely on what I'm doing and remember where all the notes are. That is too stressful for me. I want to have a system that acknowledges the fact that I am probably going to lose track of where I am, and I need to trust that my hands are going to continue and do the right thing. And look, you muscle memorize all sorts of things. When you're driving, you muscle memorize the series of things you do to start your car. You know, you look in certain mirrors, you check this and that, and then you turn on the car and go. When you're brushing your teeth, you don't have to think about which part of your teeth to start on. It's muscle memorized, you know? You just go for it. You can think about something completely different. The goal here is your excerpts should get to that point where you don't have to think about what you're doing because then you can think about beautiful things like tone and phrasing and musicality and the acoustic, but you don't have to rely on your brain to simply remember where each note is as it goes. So that's my phase one, learning the notes. My phase two, after all the excerpts have been learned using that Rome process, my phase two is self-recording. This is the process that I use to deeply polish the excerpts. So if phase one was getting the excerpts from basically zero to 70%, I think of it as making them just playable, just simply serviceable, like I could play them, I could trust my hands to play through them. Then the next step is self-recording so that I can actually make them sound how I want. I can actually achieve my vision of how they should sound. The process of self-recording might take an hour or two per excerpt. The process goes like this. I play, I listen, I problem solve, and then I repeat the whole process. And what it does is, if you can do this right, it helps you lay out all the problems that exist within your excerpt, not just what you thought the problems were, but what they actually sound like to the listener. Because normally you're multitasking. If you think about like traditional practicing where it's you and the instrument and the music stand, 
you're playing and you're listening at the same time. And so it's hard to actually figure out what the problems are if you're so focused on execution and listening to what the problems are at the same time. This is a tool that forces you to separate those activities of playing and listening so that first you can fully focus on the execution. You know, you look at your sticks or you look at the music, you look at the instrument, whatever it is, you think about what is exactly the series of things I need to think about in order to execute this properly. You know, it might be a physical thing or a series of mental things. Maybe you have a pre-excerpt routine, but you focus on the execution. And then separately, you don't distract yourself with this during playing. So separately, you then listen back and then you analyze what's going on. Okay, what's happening? How does the listener hear me? What are all the problems? And what it does is it gives you a chance to lay out all the problems, pick the top priority ones, and then focus on brainstorming and searching for a solution for each one of those problems. Self-recording is hard. You know, self-recording really exposes a lot of things that maybe you were in denial of. I hear this a lot. It's hard to self-record because you really have to face, you know, what does your excerpt look like naked in front of the mirror? Like it's not pretty sometimes. And just forcing yourself to put your excerpt through this process can make a huge, huge difference and give you an advantage in the audition because so many people show up without having done this. They don't know what their problems are. They might think they're playing well. They might think that everything's going well, but really there's a lot of problems and they actually don't have a good idea of what those problems are. So the goal in self-recording is really to make your excerpt as good as it's ever going to sound. This is where you get your excerpt to, you know, CD quality, record it for an audition tape quality. And once you're done with self-recording, then you can go on to phase three, and this is mock auditions. So if you think about it, you have learned the notes and you have self-recorded, you know, you've gotten your excerpts to a high level, you're ready to play it under one condition that it's you alone in the practice room, just you and your instrument. But I think a lot of people don't realize that there's a huge difference between how you sound in the practice room and how you sound actually live playing for somebody else while they're listening to you and analyzing your playing. Maybe you do know the difference, you know, and there's a huge drop-off in terms of quality. There will be such an enormous drop-off between where you get to at the end of self-recording and where you start at the beginning of your mock audition process. It's kind of crazy. And this is the point where I think a lot of people treat mock auditions in a weird way. They say, in my life, you know, I've spent years and maybe decades working on my instrument. I've gone to school. I've paid for lessons. I've invested all this time and energy and thought my whole family has rooted for me. You know, they've driven me to lessons and, you know, I've put everything into this. But when it comes to mock auditions and playing in front of other people, that's just a little bit outside my comfort zone. I just think it's funny because if you don't allow yourself to observe what you sound like when you're playing for other people and you just go to the audition, then your audition is going to feel like your first mock audition. And those of you who have done a lot of mock auditions know that your first mock audition usually sounds terrible. And then your second mock audition already sounds significantly better. The initial learning curve at the beginning of mock auditions is very steep and you start to get used to what it's like to play a mock audition. There's three kind of main points of doing a mock audition, and I want to go over each one of them. The first is to crowdsource your excerpts. What I mean by that is you want to bounce your interpretation of the music off a steady stream of musical brains. You want to play for somebody and see what their first reaction is, then play for somebody else and see what their first reaction is. The idea is that the feedback you get from a large number of people 
is representative of a cross section of musicians. And then when you get to the audition, you're going to be playing for a committee who all have different ideas and priorities and preferences with their playing and how you should sound. And so you need to adjust your interpretation over time to be more likely to earn more of their yes votes. So by bouncing your interpretation off of a steady stream of incoming musicians and and musical brains, you can start adjusting and tweaking your interpretation. Every day you can try something different. You can adjust tempos or dynamics. You can adjust the way you phrase something, or you can adjust the way that you articulate something. And over time, you can have a goal of tweaking your interpretation so that you get more positive comments and fewer negative comments. You can use this to spot trends in your playing that you might not have noticed during self-recording. The second point of mock auditions is you want to repetitively experience a ultra-realistic mock audition experience. As human beings, we basically have the ability to adapt to anything. You know, physically, we can get used to picking up huge weights in the weight room and our body literally shapeshifts. We can get used to, you know, having a different schedule. Like if you were to go to, you know, military boot camp, you would just get used to it. It would be very uncomfortable at first, but you would get used to it. You would slowly adapt to the experience of living in that way. And you need to literally force yourself to habitualize the experience of being in an audition. That means mock auditions can't just be like a casual hang at a friend's with a little bit of playing. You should actually force yourself to go through an ultra-realistic beginning-to-end mock audition including sitting in the waiting room, playing in front of a screen, playing in a big room, you know, as many things as you can think of to make it feel like a real audition, that is what's going to help you start to feel like it's a routine. The third point is to recreate a variety of audition situations. So a lot of people have this excuse. Oh, they asked me to play too early in the day, or the judge's phone went off, or it was too cold in the room. Well, look, Stuff is going to happen in the audition. And if you come to me and use that thing that happened as an excuse for why you didn't do well in the audition, all it tells me is that you weren't thorough enough in terms of how many audition situations you put yourself through. If you put yourself through multiple audition situations and give yourself a steady diet of differing audition circumstances, you know, size of room, time of day, arrangement of the room, you know, amount of music that you're playing at once, all sorts of distractions. If you can get yourself to feel comfortable with the distractions, you'll start to feel like it doesn't matter what happens. You're ready to start the excerpt in the right way and keep going through the excerpt without getting off track, no matter what happens. That is the goal of this kind of performance training. Simply doing repetitive mock auditions over time will help you get used to the audition circumstance. So for me, I did six weeks of daily mock auditions. That's around 42 mock auditions. And for me, how it works is this. During the first two weeks, you really feel like you're shaking constantly at the audition. It's out of control, and it sucks, and it can feel hopeless, like you're never going to overcome this. But by the end of the two weeks, if you do it every day, you start to understand the shaking. You start to feel like, ah, I'm going to shake. It's going to be somewhere between this bad and that bad. It's going to happen during this excerpt. It's going to happen during this moment, and it it ends here. You know, you're going to get really used to what happens, what how shaking affects your life. Then over the next two weeks, you actually get a chance to experiment. You can say, okay, well, why don't I try tensing up my arms and then releasing them? Why don't I try doing a specific 
type of countdown leading up to the music where I'm, you know, counting down these two measures uh, from this other section of the music, and then I start. You can try different physical and mental actions to incorporate into your pre-excerpt routines that have a chance at dealing with shaking. And then during the last two weeks, something happens that is really hard for me to explain to somebody who's never experienced it. You start to feel like an audition machine. You start to feel like nothing can stop you. Like you can just watch yourself go through the motions of mock auditions. It's really amazing how the body is able to adapt to new situations, and you can't actually have the advantage of experiencing this unless you actually do the work, unless you do all of those repetitions of audition day. I promise you, if you do six weeks of mock auditions, you are going to be incredibly happy with the results. This is something that I've heard from only a few people because most people aren't actually able to reach those six weeks of mock auditions. But the few that I actually have heard that they do, they either win their audition or they tell me without a shadow of a doubt, that was the best audition they've ever taken. If you're serious about auditioning and winning an audition, then this is definitely something that you should try. All right, so that was phase zero, phase one, phase two, phase three. So it's phase zero, get organized, phase one, learn the notes, phase two, self-recording, and phase three, mock auditions. And then comes audition day. I want to encourage you to stop thinking about auditions as a day where you should try to play your best. For me, anything can happen on audition day, and that's okay. Audition day is just a day where you're going to go in and show a randomized version of how you play. On that day, you can play at your best, you can play at your worst, or anywhere in between, and the reasons why those might happen depends on your state of mind, how you feel, how much sleep you got, whether anything is happening in your life beyond the audition, and a bunch of other things you can't really control. Even the best athletes have bad days, and they have bad days during the best years of their careers. So yes, you should treat yourself well and have as little stress as possible. In the end, it shouldn't really matter how you feel, and it shouldn't even matter if you play your worst. The type of work that we've done, or that you should have a goal for yourself of doing, is not to boost the upper limit of how great you might play on the best day ever when all the stars are aligned. You need to make foundational fixes permanent, effective solutions that are muscle memorized completely. And those fixes are going to happen no matter how audition day goes. That's why I was talking to you about being thorough with our notes and details and not leaving anything out. Based on those foundational fixes, even on our worst day of playing, our rhythm is going to be fine because we worked each note into place. The phrasing scheme is still going to be embedded into your presentation. Because you muscle memorized and polished the excerpt so much, you can't fall very far. So even on your worst day, bad for you is going to be quite a bit higher than the average person auditioning. So your goal is, through the audition preparation process, to bring a worst-case scenario audition that's better than everyone else's best possible audition. So the audition is going to happen. That's pretty much all you can do is just to show up. A few tips for audition day. You should think about making audition day just another day by approaching it in the same way you approached every day of your preparation. So avoid last minute adjustments, you know, the second guessing on the day of. They're emotional in nature and they're not based on your thoughtful workflow. You should definitely record your audition so that you can analyze it later. And remember, you can't control everything. But if you worked correctly, then you'll be more likely to achieve a high level. You'll check off more of the boxes that the committee members are paying attention to when they make their determination about whether to vote for you or not. 
And finally, the best thing you can do on audition day is simply to plan to learn from your experience. You're using that day and all the data you collect to improve your audition process so that next time can be better. And that is really the point. I talked about this in the last episode, but this is absolutely the most important part of this. If you get one thing out of this entire audition preparation process, it's that. Audition day is just a test of your audition preparation process. So you're going to save all the data and analyze it later so that next time, this audition preparation process can be just tweaked and be a little bit better than last time. All right, so that is my audition preparation process. That's exactly what I did. I used a few months and I went through each of those steps, phase zero, phase one, phase two, and phase three. I went to my audition and then I won the audition. It was awesome. I truly think that something like that is possible for you. It's likely that your audition preparation process and the details inside of it look different than mine. I do know that this preparation process is something that a lot of people have used almost exactly to do incredible, amazing things at their audition. And likely what you could do is you could take a look at this audition preparation process and use it to cross things out and write your own steps in. But this in itself is a thorough process. It is an authoritative process in that it has won an audition before. And so I encourage you to take a look at this and think about what is your audition preparation process? Are you going to try to use this one exactly or are you going to alter it to actually establish what you want to do at your next audition. So if you want to download a PDF that goes over the steps that I talked about today, you can go to robnopper.com slash audition cheat sheet. I have that five-step guide to constructing your audition preparation process and optimizing it for maximum results. You can download it right away. And if you want to ask a question to be answered in a future episode of the Audition Hacker podcast, you should go to robnopper.com slash ask, and you can use the voice recording tool there to record your question. And if you like this podcast, please give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts, and I can't wait to see you in the next episode.